From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome to episode 167 of the Killing It podcast. This is Carl and I'm joined as always by Ryan and Dave and we are just cruising straight on towards summer. Well, since it's summer and since we're all travelers, where are you guys going on summer vacation? Ryan's always on vacation. He doesn't need a summer vacation. I know. See, I, I this, this is what I was saying to uh, to my buddy from high school just the other day. Uh, I aspire to live a world, A, that is on permanent vacation while I'm still working, and B, that does not require coats. This is my <laughs> definition of success. So the fact that summertime here is uh, basically, you know, anywhere other than Seattle and Portland is going to be 99 degrees every day during the summer. I'm not going to have a hard time finding a place to go, but uh, I- I'm not going back to Hawaii for the summer because <laughs> that's the keen period to rent your property. And uh, I'm a capitalist after all. So my summer vacation is actually going to the mountains. We're going to go find some time to go up where it's a little bit less hell hot. <laughs> and, you're, and you're in Salt Lake, so the mountains are like an inch away. Literally, right, right over there, I can see them out my window. Well, I'm going to, to CompTIA in August, and then I fly from Chicago straight to Scotland. And uh, I'm going to do a little work and a little play, uh, but mostly play and call it work. And so that's, uh, that, that'll, be my, that'll be my summer vacation. You Come might on. get there three days of summer. You might actually time it for the Scottish summer of three days. It's August. Where can I go? It's like, well, you, the only time to go to, especially Scotland, but the UK is August. So. <laughs> yeah, now I'm officially jealous, Carl. I'm going to have to learn more about your upcoming trip because Scotland is one of my favorite places on the planet. I think the last time the three of us were, the only time the three of us were together in Manchester, it was like November. It was seven degrees, you know, and they're all outside without their coats on drinking beer. Perfect pub weather. Perfect pub weather. <laughs> so it's funny because Sharon and I have sort of broken the like traditional, like we go on, we don't go on vacation in summer as much. Like we, we don't, we have kids. We haven't felt the need to. This year we are taking a summer vacation at the end. Uh, we are going to go to Switzerland. We're going to stay with some friends in, a friend in Bern. And then we're going to fly down to Sicily and stay with another friend who's there. And that is, this is very much a factor of, their availability <laughs> versus our availability. It's like, oh, we managed to find some time for the when the Europeans are more on vacation and so we could visit our American friends over there. Uh, so that is our little little t- trip right at the end of August as we lead into September. Very good. So we want to know what your vacation is. Send us a note. Go ahead and put it in the show notes as long as you're there giving us a like and a thumbs up and a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love. I'd love to hear about some some exotic and cool locations, or some not exotic. And exactly. Locations. I'll be in the living room because I went to the family room last year. 
Well, when it comes to delivering cybersecurity services to your client, there's a lot to consider and even more at stake. Firewalls and antivirus don't provide enough protection anymore, and adding more tools to an already complex tech stack is expensive and difficult to manage. The Field Effect Partner Momentum Program, together with our award-winning security portfolio, solves these issues by making it easier for MSPs to deliver complete cybersecurity protection, unlock new revenue streams, simplify operations, and stand out from the competition. Learn more and connect with the Field Effect team by visiting fieldeffect.com slash MSP Radio. So our first story today is one, I, I covered it on the business of tech, but it is too much fun to not actually cover here as well. Uh, if you've been tracking right to repair, Apple has responded to market pressures by offering their self-repair program. So an intrepid reporter did it. <laughs> In fact, they covered it over The Verge, and it's gotten much more larger uh, coverage beyond that. And some of the ways this works is, is you end up with two very large Pelican cases full of equipment and tools, which you <laughs> rent with a like $1,200 deposit plus the rental per the week, and they send you all the parts, and you get this industrial gear to fix your iPhone. Uh so, so, gents, did they check the checkbox for right to repair with this one? <laughs> they did check the box. Yes. Yes, you have the right to repair. And for $10 uh, less than it would take you to go down to the Apple store and have somebody who knows what they're doing do it, you can break your own iPhone yourself. <laughs> I, I will say, I'm not a fanboy of Apple, but I fully, I said on this program and I fully expected that this program would be, that Apple would do what they always do, which is, Take all the things people don't like, eliminate them, and come out with something that is simple and elegant and obvious where everybody says, why isn't all right to repair like this? And I admit I was wrong. They completely did not do that. <laughs> they, they basically said, okay, you want right to repair. This is as ugly as it can get, and this is what it looks like. Uh, so they're, they're, they're doing it. They, they can claim in front of Congress that they're being quote-unquote nice guys, but... This is not what right to repair is supposed to look like. I will also note the, the videos are hilarious. <laughs> People hauling up these 85 pounds of uh, equipment in Pelican cases. Well, I wanna give some space for the use case in right to repair that doesn't get enough attention on this. You can buy the Apple gear and get the Apple parts and the documentation now as a third party. Right to repair doesn't necessarily mean only the company and the person that bought the equipment. It also means that they will allow third parties. And I think that that is important to sort of say, like, you can do that. Like, you, if you were run, want to run a business repairing this stuff, well, you can, right? That is now possible. And then the other thing about right to repair that this does open that I think is important is it releases the documentation and the techniques for all of time. Now, we generally view iPhones as a disposable thing, right? They, we, you, re you replace them all the time. But devices don't necessarily have to be forever disposable. I'm a retro video game guy, as anybody who knows, right? Having access to the manuals and the procedures for original equipment repair, if you are keeping them for very specialized reasons, that's kind of an important thing to have. So, yeah, I, by the way, I am totally on board with it. It's funny and they completely ridiculously did it. 
But I want to observe that there are spaces where this actually is hitting both the spirit and the letter of the law. Well, see, I will say, to answer the question specifically, did they check the box? Yes, they did. They took their middle finger, they dipped it in ink, and they made the mark on the page and said, uh, this is exactly what we think of you. My, my immediate reaction to this whole thing back when they first announced it, and now that you can actually see it in the wild, Everyone that I know who used to be a microwave franchisee is itching to buy these Pelican cases and actually set up a retail storefront and get back to the good old days, right? Like that, that is where our industry began was a legacy of that's a really expensive, complicated piece of equipment and I don't want to throw it away. I would like to service it and extend its mean time between failures. And that is a valid business model. Our industry has proceeded aggressively in the direction of we don't even track mean time between failure anymore because the answer is screw it, throw it away, buy a new one. It's less expensive and it's less hassle. And that's quite frankly exactly how all of the mega scale, the hyperscale data centers, that's how they operate. They do not repair servers in racks. They remove them, they throw them in the trash, and they replace them with another because the downtime for repair is actually more expensive than just buying another blade, right? That is where our industry wants to go. That is not a reasonable expectation for all pieces of technology. And let me just say for somebody who spent the last two months learning the hard way that there is the difference between having the tools and also having the craft to use the tools effectively while we were doing a remodel on a condo. Um, there is a time and a place where the answer is, you should hire a guy to do that, who knows how to do that. The videos associated with this thing are absolutely hysterical. And when the headline in the New York Times of all places says, and chaos ensued. Um, that That is exactly what happens when non-skilled labor does things like, I don't know, try to cut tile to install in a bathroom. Don't do that. Hire somebody. <laughs> so I, I will say this actually fits into a long history of appearing, repairing appliances. Uh, back in the 60s and 70s and even in the 80s, uh, if you had uh, an appliance repair shop, you, repair, you repaired TVs and radios and so forth, you could actually just write to Zenith and get the schematics and the layout and everything about what it took to uh, replace, and re remove and replace parts on uh, televisions and toasters and everything else. Uh, and so there's some piece of this where they do fit into a long history but so far, until recently, their, their basic stand was, yeah, we're not going to do that. I will say, as a side note, for $150, you can go buy a kit to do it yourself that's much cheaper and easier. Uh, and for $100, you can go into a store and somebody will do it for you. <laughs> so, you know, they, it's got to find its place, but it's a tiny, tiny step in the right direction. Yeah, I'm on board. But by the way, your example of the Magnavox, exactly reinforcing what I was saying about that, that ending up being useful 30 and 40 years later. There are people that are, are now using that information to keep some of that gear alive. And having noted last week how old I am, I did not insert a story of me learning to 
uh, fixed televisions before there was color. So <laughs> having said that, let's move on to topic number two for today, which is about the evolution of visas for digital nomads. And uh, there's uh, one of the articles that we're pointing to has a nice little graphic that sort of lays out most, but not all of the things you need to look at with a digital nomad visa. Well, first of all, what is that? Well, many countries are moving to allowing you and me and everybody else to stay in their country for months, if not years, if we run our businesses there and demonstrate that we're not a drain on their economy. So uh, it used to be, you know, many, many countries will let you in for a month, no questions asked. Well, now that could be years in the case of a place like Thailand. Um, the one thing that they don't really put in the graph is that some of these have restrictions based on age. That if you are over, let's say, 35, some countries won't give you a digital nomad visa, right? So they want young people who are energetic, who want to run their business from their exotic location, uh, not necessarily older people. Uh, still, I think it's a cool trend and I can't wait a couple years down the road for more and more countries to make these available. Well, it's all about where the income's coming from too, which I think is super interesting. Like there, this is, you've seen this in expat visas too. Anyone who's watched this for a while knows that there are countries that specifically set themselves up to allow retirement in there. This is just, a, this in one way is another flavor of that where you're saying, look, if you're making your money elsewhere and you're not taking money from the locals here, we would love to have you spend that money in our country. And we're getting very savvy about that. Uh, you know, again, I, I am all for, right? Double thumbs up, love the trend, uh, love the idea of doing this. And we'll note that, you know, interestingly, uh, the U.S. is really the only country that will also tax you, you know, that, that requires you to do the taxes for stuff outside of the country, too. Like, we, we are a bit of an anomaly in the way that we tax uh, income versus other countries. It is, it is kind of an interesting difference and one that we may find uh, in some ways makes us a little bit less attractive uh, because, because of the restrictions that the U.S. places. See, uh, I, I think, again, to echo each of you guys, hard approve on the trend. And I think it's only going to get more interesting as the regulatory framework becomes more friendly to this concept. Now, the, the idea of a digital nomad is the extreme fringe case. It's the extreme use case of work from anywhere. Uh, most of us, when we say work from anywhere, we mean, to Carl's point, the living room, the family room, the upstairs <laughs> bedroom, right? Like that's anywhere in the modern working world. But this is not brand new, right? The digital nomad thing, if you go back and look at it, has been around for 25 years ever since technology originally allowed you to begin, even with small dial-up modems, uh, to, to actually start to share digital files from anywhere. And it's always been just this radically tiny portion of the population that did it. And it was always young, single people who wanted to go have an exotic experience and still do principally a creative job that they could do from anywhere. This is now opening it up to the point where regular people with office jobs who jockey spreadsheets or write code or monitor uh, server farms or whatever, give me a broadband connection. Technologically, I can do that. We all learned 
organically through the two years of the pandemic shutdown that organizationally you can figure this out and it can be done. The X factor was always the regulatory environment that said you could do that for 90 days, but then you got to go away and then you got to come back. And there was always this gymnastics of coming in and getting out. And did you stay out for long enough in order to not violate any of the things? The fact that countries around the world are now taking this seriously is now the evidence that says, guys, that's not going to be one-tenth of one percent of the population anymore. It's never going to be a hundred percent because people have families and community connections and roots that stick them where they are, but it will become five percent. It will become ten percent and it will become a reasonable thing for regular working professionals to do from Thailand, from Scotland, from wherever in the heck floats your boat. I think it's fantastic and I think this is an amazing development. Well, the couple of notes. One is that if you look at the timelines, some of these are calling it uh, a digital nomad visa, even though the, the time frame is you can stay up to one month. Well, <laughs> what the hell? Right? It's also known as a tourist visa. <laughs> right? Yeah, if I can do it with a tourist visa, why do I need a digital nomad visa? On the other hand, I will say some of them, like to what Ryan had mentioned, if you it used to be if you go to Thailand, uh, you can ask for a one month or a three month visa, no questions asked, and then you got to leave the country and you have to apply. You have to spend a day in Malaysia or whatever, and then you come back and and you're good to go again. And that's sort of a almost a silly element. But I think what's really cool to this is that countries are seeing that one of their assets is their environment. Like, hey, you know what? It's, it's kind of cool to be in Australia or Grenada or wherever. And, uh, you know, that people want to do that. And again, they're crafted so that you contribute to their economy, not just hang out on the beach and take your money home with you. Uh, so many of them, you know, they're, they will tax you in certain ways, but they also acknowledge you're earning this money. You're living in their country. You're going to buy rent. You're going, you're going to buy food. You're going to have entertainment, right? You are literally, literally contributing to their economy. Uh, and so I think it's, I know it's all good news for me, <laughs> but I think it's all good news for a lot of people as well. And, and what I will say is without disclosing any trade secrets here, um, we've done a ton of research on Spain, on Italy, on France, on the UK, looked at a number of Southern European countries and the laws are all over the place. Like literally that's why it takes so much research but there are a few sweet spots out there where this is legit and it is available to regular people. Like it's not like, oh, I finally fell into a bucket of money and now I can go do this exotic thing. No, no, regular people doing regular jobs. The X factor is you have to learn how to adapt your time zone to where the people paying you are on time zone. Sometimes that means 4 a.m. conference calls and you know what? I am living evidence of the fact that a 4 a.m. conference call once a week in trade for living in Hawaii, I'm totally cool with that. <laughs> well, the other thing that's, that's kind of fun to notice is what these things cost because uh, there's a handful that are expensive, but most of them under a hundred bucks, right? It's not like, you know, you have to, in the old days, you had to have uh, $50,000 in the bank and be willing to do this and that. And it's like, no, 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 just show up. Some of them do have some requirements on your income, but um, 
you know, they're not generally so exorbitant that you can't just show up. Excellent, guys. Let's jump to our third topic, which not on purpose is also about the other side of the remote working conversation. And uh, we're going to point you to a link from an article from the folks over at Axios. Uh, they're pointing to some research that was done in our industry, talking to technology professionals who uh, are are working remote, and they were trying to take a, an update status check, right? Before the pandemic, during the pandemic, now, did you work from home or someplace else? Never, sometimes, always. How is that changing? And then what are some of the organizational behaviors that have adapted during the process? And one of them that, that we're highlighting here is around the idea of remote surveillance technologies that bosses are using to check in on you and micromanage your productivity. And uh, the, the question ultimately that they are asking in this article is, what is the likelihood that you would immediately quit your job if you found that your employer was doing such things as surreptitiously recording audio and video of you using your webcam or using facial recognition to monitor that it's actually you at the computer, tracking keystrokes and taking screenshots? And uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because uh, I... I have some very distinct thoughts about this, but I'd like to hear what you guys have to say first. You mean you mean having to use technology rather than actually build trust is not a great idea? <laughs> uh, you know, I just, I just, I don't know. This is one of those bits where it's, it's like you know, we're we're almost we're solving the wrong problem, right? If you think you're going to solve productivity by attaching facial recognition to make sure you're sitting at your desk. Perhaps you have a larger cultural problem at your organization. <laughs> you know, it, it's one of the things that, that doesn't get discussed enough when we dig into all of this data is literally just the how you are treating your people. There's some new data around uh, the that I was covering on, on Business Tech, which talked around uh, the idea of where the drop-offs are. Like the most... The places where there is the least return to the office is the places where the commute is longest. For example, city downtowns is because of commute. Why? Well, people don't want to sit in their cars. Like It's about how they're using their time. It's how you treat them. There was some other interesting research that showed uh, lots of people believe that they are worthy of being trusted remotely, but they don't trust their coworkers. This all <laughs> speaks to the investment in culture, the investment in the way you would treat people. And I, I think that that more than anything is, is become such an element of a lost art that you that the way you build and treat employees kind of matters and they are not just interchangeable and perhaps spending more time there than dissecting all of the ways I might be able to monitor them. Eh, maybe that's where you should spend your time. Well, we've touched on this a few times in the pandemic that there are people who are just not built to manage remote workforces. You know, there are people who just, they cannot get their brain around the idea that uh, you can be productive, especially in a knowledge work environment, without counting the number of minutes and the number of seconds. Um, some of the technology around this is actually humorous. Uh, my daughter's given me quite a, an education on it because uh, her company wanted to do this and they would like monitor how much your mouse moved. And so there were like whole chat channels on how to 
automate the movement of your mouse every so many seconds and so forth. My daughter took a different approach, which was she refused to participate or install any of the programs because she said, I will be one of the top three performers in the country and um, you will never fire me. So if that's not true, you go ahead and fire me three months from now. <laughs> and, and she, you know, proceeded to do her job extremely well. But there are a lot of managers who just have the wrong mindset, and that's cool. I mean, they need to go manage people in an office where they can stand behind them and look over their shoulder. Um, but I think there's going to be a whole new generation of people who have learned to build their business in the cloud, who have learned to manage people remotely, and who've learned that you evaluate people on performance, not on the number of minutes spent doing a task. Uh, so I, with luck, I think that's the future, but we can't forget the fact that a whole lot of people got trained historically in the old school way of doing things. And that's that's just the world we live in. Well, and, and as you often remind us, Carl, it's very important to point out that just because 100% of the people don't do something does not mean it won't be the dominant model of the future. What I mean is, in the future, I believe that this will be a substantial contributor to GDP on a very measurable basis. The fact that people can work from anywhere for anyone, it just creates so much organizational creativity and access to a radically larger talent pool that an organization that is good at remote working can remove many of the 19th century limitations on location, 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 right? It, a modern business economy just does not have to be limited by place and time because technology. Now, that will be, I believe, a dominant contributor to the future of our economy. That doesn't mean everybody's going to do it because some people still run their data farms on tape backup systems and some people still use green bar dot matrix printers in order to track their data. It is always going to be a thing. Why? Because humans, right? Exactly what both of you guys are getting at is some people suck at it. It is just because remote work is technologically available doesn't mean that everybody is good at that, either individually or institutionally, right? It can be the worker is bad at it. It could be the manager is bad at it. It could just be the overall organization. I believe this is going to be a competitive differentiator in a very tight labor market. The fact that we can't find people, we can't hire anybody, and you're going to pay them exorbitant salaries in order to do so, um, you got to use all the tools available at your disposal to compete for talented humans. And telling them, you absolutely positively must work in the office, I don't care because I can't figure out how to manage you, well, all you did right there is tell me another reason why. I don't want to work for you. I'll go work for somebody else. Well, right, and but but I actually want to spend the. Uh, you, you said it, but I want to reinforce on it. The the, I don't want to spend a ton of time telling people that they're shitty managers, right? Because <laughs> because by the way, it's becoming they're self-selecting. They're making it incredibly obvious to me by their choices. Instead, what I want to highlight is is that an investment in being good at this is exactly what you said. It is a competitive advantage. Like, I get it. Like, and from an employee perspective, sure, you should definitely look at this and recognize that if they're saying this, it is also code for I'm a shitty manager. But 
more importantly, most of the time I'm thinking of the business owner or the manager themselves. And I'm saying, look, you can carve out this space and be great and excel at it and pull ahead of your competition, but it's going to take some effort. It is an actual skill set. It does not just happen automatically. So don't just assume, oh, I'll just figure this out. Like, okay, what you, you can, but it takes some deliberate effort. And there are, there is a transformation that you go through, hating the transformation phrase. But by doing it and by investing in it, I think there's competitive advantage. And by the way, I don't expect most people to do that. I don't expect them to do the heavy work. I expect there to be a lot in the weird zone in the middle where they're kind of trying, right? Like I think there's going to be a lot of orgs that just sort of stumble through this and their definition is going to be, well, we do let people work remote. They work from remote two or three days a week, right? So and they don't, they don't actually take advantage of what's possible here and they aren't good at it. I will say that I had a, an accidental experience on these grounds just last week, which is I went to the uh, Society of Association Executives and I went to, they had a choice of, you know, the afternoon thing, uh, choose one of these topics and sit in on that seminar. And the seminar I sat in on is how to be a good manager of remote workers. <laughs> so literally like it is a thing like the, the training is active and it's ongoing and I think it'll be something we'll see for a very, very long time. It was also quite educational as a technology person to see the challenges that these folks have and how well educated they are on the challenges that we face every day. They are not unaware of the, the technology as well as the human challenges on this. So uh, with luck, uh, we, we loop back to the future's already here. It's just not widely distributed. <laughs> exactly. And, and again, to kind of land this thing for everybody, this is a capability, not a, an entitlement, right? It is something you have to work for to be good at. And when you are good at it, it will give you access to advantages that other people don't have. But if your answer is, I'm going to install a piece of software that will literally sneak up on your employees, either you're not good at it or you hired people who can't be trusted in either one of those is a much bigger problem than the technology excellent thank you both that will do it for episode 167 of the killing it, killing it. podcast thanks for tuning in to the killing it podcast please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on itunes stitcher and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.